Productions. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Well, today I am just overjoyed with my guest today, uh, get a chance to sit down with Dr. Shana Kelly. Um, Shana is currently the Nina B. Schwartz Professor of Chemistry and Biomedical Engineering in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics at Northwestern University. She's also a member of the Chemistry of Life Processes Institute. Um, in the International Institute for Nanotechnology and Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. Um, before this uh, and before coming to Chicago, she was a university professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, her research interests are focused on the development of new technologies for clinical diagnostics and drug delivery. Um, she got her BA in chemistry from Seton Hall, PhD in chemistry from Caltech, and a postdoc at, at Scripps uh, out, out on the West Coast. Um, she's been an inventor on numerous patents, uh, over 200 publications, um, has started and developed and been very successful with a handful of companies, which I'm excited to talk about with her and her experience in, in um, spinning off those companies, including Genome Sciences, which was eventually acquired by Becton Dickinson, uh, Zygenic, uh, which was acquired by General Atomics, Arma Bioscience is a new venture that she's working on, as well as Control Therapeutics. So really excited to welcome you to the show, Shana, and uh, looking forward to uh, having a conversation, a little bit about your journey, and to our audience, uh, having them get a chance to walk with you on your journey and relate to kind of uh, what brought you here today and kind of what you see for the future as well. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And maybe just from from that perspective, if we can kind of just do a level set and talk a little bit about what motivated you to get into the field of chemistry and science broadly and uh, what your early path was like and, you know, driving you in that direction. Sure. Uh, so slightly unorthodox uh, path. I went to college thinking I was going to be a business major. Uh, I had worked for a little while out of high school and liked numbers and thought I liked the the elements of, of business that uh, I would study at college and then uh, went, took macroeconomics, microeconomics and realized right away that I didn't actually like <laughs> it. So I went to my freshman advisor and I said, I don't know what to do. I thought I wanted to study business, but I don't. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit as a at a loss as to what I should be looking at. And so this guy actually had a copy of my uh, high school transcripts in his desk. He just pulled it out of a drawer and, he was waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. And he just pulled it out and he said, Shana, you always got A's in chemistry in high school. Y your other grades were a little spotty, but chemistry was always spot on. Why don't you take some chemistry classes? And I sat there and I thought, well, okay, you know, it's worth a try. So, Shana, when you ultimately kind of moved on, you know, from your graduate program and uh, decided to kind of carry on thereafter, what were some of the things that um, happened after that? Um, I understand that, you know, you started a company pretty early in your career. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that experience. 
Sure. So when I was uh, a graduate student at, at Caltech, I was studying something very basic. We were looking at moving electrons through DNA and just trying to figure out whether that happened fast or slow. It was that basic of a question that we were asking. And after digging through different ways to, to get at that, um, I eventually started putting DNA molecules on electrodes just as a way to shoot the electrons through the DNA and have a way to, to measure how fast they traveled. And just very serendipitously, what we discovered is that if you mismatch the bases in DNA, that that slows the electrons down. And we didn't do that with any application in mind, but started thinking about it. This, at the time, uh, it was not straightforward to sequence DNA, so this is going back quite a ways. Um, but we realized that we had this way to look at mismatches, and so we, the wheels kind of started turning. We thought, you know what, this may be a way to diagnose genetic disease. Hmm. If we could put this into some kind of a standardized format, make it into a piece of diagnostic instrument, uh, then maybe we, we could use this for, for disease diagnosis. So um, started to, you know, think about that idea. I, I, at the same time, was looking for a postdoc and wasn't sure uh, whether my postdoctoral work should be uh, kind of something that would lead me to academia or maybe lead me to industry. And so I ended up choosing someone to work for, a guy named Paul Schimmel, who was at the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego, who was porting a lot of people kind of down both paths. Hmm. So I joined his lab. I learned some molecular biology, spent the time with him. Uh, and then in the background, we actually got this company going, Genome Sciences, based on that single mismatch uh, technology. And it was quite something um, because it, it happened very quickly. So we just you know went to tech transfer at Caltech with the idea, myself and my advisor. Uh, they had a bunch of VCs on speed dial, got us meetings the next week. And then the following week, we had a term sheet for $5 million to get a company started. So I was kind of, you know, doing my postdoc, learning molecular biology, getting the company started. And then I ended up landing an academic position in Boston. And I had decided by that time, you know, I'm really interested in starting companies, but I don't know how that much about how this is all going to go. So I think I want to get my own academic position so that I can keep doing research, generating ideas, and then I'll, I'll kind of see how this all converges. So that's how I kind of made the jump from uh, grad student to postdoc to somebody then running running a lab and also trying to get a company going. What were some of the early challenges that you found? It sounded like it was pretty straightforward um, as you launched that that company, but what were some of the early challenges that you faced, even straddling kind of the academic position that you had um, and then some of the, the company demands? Yeah. Well, it was definitely a juggling act, <laughs> pretty intense one, but we were so fortunate at Genome that we had great, great investors. So we had uh, Domain as the, the lead investor, and we had Jim Blair as uh, somebody who was very active on the board of the company, and Jim really helped us build it. So I ended up joining forces with a guy who was a year ahead of me at Caltech in the same lab. His name is Eric Holman. He's now the CEO of BioNanoGenomics, which is a company based in San Diego. Mm. And so Eric and I kind of joined forces to get things going. Eric was full-time. I was running back and forth between my new lab. And right away, it was clear that the hardest thing was going to be getting people to join us. Like, how do you get people? And San Diego was a much smaller ecosystem at the time, Right. How do you find people to plug into this brand new company? And eventually, you know, we found a couple people. But one of the things that really blew me away was like the silence. You know, we were out in some industrial park in San Diego trying to get things, tech transfer and the whole thing. And it was just so quiet at the time. <laughs> you know, usually you're working in a big lab and there's people around the whole thing. But also it was like very, very quiet. Yeah. 
Um, so it took a while, but we eventually got things going. Um, you know, Eric was really the guy who then was, uh, you know, building the, the team and, 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 and really, you know, got things going at, at scale. And again, I was kind of in and out, but it was an incredible experience to have as, you know, first company I was ever involved with, you know, Jim Blair in the mix. Uh, we had Stuart Collinson as the chairman hmm. of the board for a while. And he yeah. was an amazing All-star guy to work cast. with. Yeah. And then we recruited a management team of just unbelievable people. And then I just kind of watched them pick it up, take it to the next level, the next level, the next level. And then we had all kinds of plans for what we were going to do with the company and the technology. And then along came back to Dickinson with an offer we couldn't refuse. And then I learned about that part of the process where you have to just kind of let go. How did that feel? I mean, you know, having been, you know, involved in company building myself, um, sometimes it's bittersweet. I mean, it's so personal, your idea there. And it got, you know, to to where it uh, ultimately was growing and flourishing. And maybe you had a different vision for where it was ultimately going to go. But that changed because someone else saw value in it and came in. And on one hand, it's very flattering and exciting, and it, and the scalability of that kind of goes, you know, beyond your own capabilities. But at the same time, since you're so personally tied, sometimes it can be sad. I mean, yeah. what, any any uh, feelings on that? Yeah, I did have those feelings, but we had also been through the ups and downs of the venture capital markets, yeah. right? You had the dot-com bust, and then it was impossible to raise money, sure. and all the companies that were in the same industrial park as us all went, you know, right. down, and we were the only ones still standing. And so it was pretty clear that it was, you know, to survive and be successful was really, yeah. that was the end goal. Yeah. Um, so I was I was really delighted. I mean, it was just such an incredible experience to watch, you know, the end-to-end and mm-hmm. the entire life cycle. And I saw things that were being shelved. But I knew that was actually an opportunity for me to kind of go back to my own lab and say, okay, how can we do this bigger, better, faster, so mm. that the next time the company, you know, that technology is is front and center, and that's what we get acquired for. Yeah. So uh, it was it was bittersweet, but I I felt like there were there was enough you know upside in all of, of course. the various respects, mostly yeah. joy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. satisfaction yeah. for sure. Yeah, and and I think um, but though it sounds to me one of the common threads that I hear as you tell your story is just this. Uh, this drive and uh, excitement around the research, you know, getting to the lab and iterating and 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 advancing, um, and it seems like you're able to enjoy kind of both of the pathways where you get to apply and see the outputs, you know, associated with some of that early research, and that had to be really fulfilling, you know, um, with genome at the time. It that is definitely what gets me out of bed in the morning, you know, yeah. then and now, just yeah. coming up with ideas, you know, really identifying an unmet need and kind of connecting that idea to the unmet need and then working to do the demonstration that you need to. And then, you know, it takes a long time, but you have that idea and then you try it out on investors and you get the companies up and running. And then it takes a lot longer than you think it's going to to then get that idea into a product, but you do. And For me, that's the reason to do research. Like I don't, I'm really not a basic research person. I really like to see things kind of moving along. And and there's just so many 
major problems that need to be solved. Absolutely. But you, the other, uh, when, when I watch your eyes light up upon the company side, it's a, a equal excitement. So it's just kind of interesting to watch how you've been able to straddle both of those pathways and be very successful on both sides. But it seems to me you're driven on the company side. You love the building process. I mean, you talk about the people. I, that's one thing I've always enjoyed about my own journey in biotech is the people, the characters, where they came from, how they got there. Um, and, you know, the the sometimes, you know, surprising outcomes, both on the upside and on the, on the downside, and the importance of persistence and patience and, and moving along, kind of playing the long game in biotech kind of has yeah. to be a, a given. Do you have any thoughts on that, especially as you kind of move from genome on to the next venture and your next idea? Um, what were some of the uh, guiding lights and uh, uh, features that were taking you on to the, ne the next phase of your career? Yeah, so, I mean, Exogenic was really kind of a, a next generation version of what we did at Genome that solved a lot of the problems that we had at Genome. And we got it off the ground. And, and one thing that I realized, I mean, you talked about the people and, and, and that being just a big part of why startups are so exciting. I, I kind of recognized that in me because people don't really recognize this, but running an academic lab is kind of lonely. Like it's you and a bunch of students, you know, and postdocs and different people, but you're at the very top of this, you know, organization that, that you run. When you're doing a company, you have peers, right? And people that you just are in lockstep with, if, if, you're, if the team dynamic is good and you get things done together. And I really love that, you know, and that's, it's very hard to reproduce in the academic environment. So we got Exogenic going. It, it was even harder than genome because Canada, you know, the commercialization ecosystem is at that time, it was really tough. It's gotten a little bit better, but it's still tough. So was, we're at uh, backtracking to when you're at Caltech and you walked down the hall and then you walked into the tech transfer office and, and you had Kleiner Perkins on speed dial. It was not the case. No, uh, with when starting, I called yeah. the tech transfer office at the University of Toronto and said, I have this IP and I want to start a company, they said, you want to do what? Why would you want to do that? And I yeah. said, is this the tech transfer office or did I call the wrong <laughs> place? The wrong but they were just not, they, they were not in that business at the yeah. time. So I started making the calls um, to, to try to get meetings with investors and get the ball rolling. But it was right before that next financial crisis. Mm. I have like a knack for, you know, I think seeing those things coming. So <laughs> made a couple calls and then, you know, everybody ran screaming when everything imploded. And yeah. so it took Just like 2008, 10, exactly. 2009. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, but I kept at it. You know, I counted it up one time. I took 70, I took meetings with 75 individual investment groups to get the syndicate that backed Exogenet. It yeah. took a very long time and it was yeah. very hard. Um, but we did it and, and built something And it's great. funny, too, because a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you've done it before, so it's got to be easier. Or, you know, you already have a track record, so it's easy to go raise money. And to some degree, there's some, you know, brand value and track record does yeah. play into the picture. But so do a lot of other things, you know, the time of the market, the... Um, you know, the technology itself and yeah. the market that it's going after, all those things, no matter how good your track record is. So I, I always kind of, um, you know, um, think that people uh, give too much credit for yeah. what, what track record can produce in the future and that it's the here and now that's being valued and being savvy each time out of the yep. gate is going to, it really is what carries the day. 
And your experience there, I mean, having to go and talk to 75 investors, <laughs> you know, that's a long roadshow. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It was a very long roadshow. It was years, yeah. you know. But yeah. yeah, track record gets you the meeting. Yeah. And that's it, really. Yeah. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. One thing that um, you know I've, I've noticed is uh, you know universities uh, have invested very heavily, certainly around our ecosystem, and really you know in, in many parts of the country, um, into a more well-developed kind of innovation uh, commercialization uh, platform. Uh, some are better at it than others. Some are more advanced and accelerated. Um, obviously, the hotspots around Boston and the Bay Area, MIT and and Stanford are always kind of noted as the early movers and the well oiled machines. But I've noticed, you know, in the past decade, a lot of universities are moving in a direction to try to make it easier for faculty to innovate, apply and try to start companies around their ideas. Um, w- would you agree with that? And what is your what has been your experience or observations? around kind of not being in an ecosystem like like San Diego and your uh, the, the challenges and opportunities that go with more uh, uh, where we are today and the importance of um, universities making it as easy as possible if one wants to start a company around their IP. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has gotten easier and there are so many more programs, right? Incubators, accelerators, just all kinds of things that you can access But to me, one of the big gaps that remains is, you know, your average academic can't actually get the company started. Like they don't understand cap tables and, you know, the way that investor syndicates come together and all of the crazy stuff that happens when you start to put a financing together. Um, And so there's a huge gap because, you know, there's people like me that have just been doing it a long time and can kind of muddle their way through a financing. And then you kind of figure out the talent part later and investors are usually okay with that. But for people that don't have the experience, they really need to join forces with someone that has done it, you know, and I've seen that work really well, but it's so hard to find those people, Mm -hmm. you know, who wants to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like partner up with some academic that doesn't know what they're doing with some technology that probably doesn't work. And, you know, it's just, so I think we have to figure out how to solve that part of the equation. How, How do we like train business students and get them to, you know, give us some time, you know, once they have some experience under their belt, not right out of, you know, the MBA, but, you know, how do we get more talent to kind of take the science out? Because I believe there is a huge amount of innovation that is trapped in universities, Mm -hmm. honestly, just trapped because it can't get out. Right. And it's, it's lost productivity. Yeah. And uh, I think taking that one step further, one of the challenges I think that goes with kind of moving outside the university, getting the company formed, you know, licensing the IP, building that early scientific team, oftentimes an emerging ecosystem has a lot of those raw materials to begin with. What becomes challenging is as those companies move downstream and start to need to raise institutional capital, uh, that's where, again, track record begins to matter more, market size, sophistication of the team becomes more and more important. And I think that level of talent is a little harder to find. It's a smaller pool and tends to be concentrated in places where a lot more of that activity is is happening. And my observations are that some, some of those things are... Um, 
being liberated to a greater degree kind of coming out of COVID where, you know, I watch even the company that I started a couple of years ago where I'm uh, the chairman of Pixis Oncology. We're based in Boston. Uh, I've got 75 employees, but uh, we're, we have employees in 15 different states. So the distributed model of biotech, I think, is the, the model of the future to some degree. And being able to kind of have a CMO that's in Florida and a CSO that's based in Seattle, but a core scientific team. There's, there's something to be said for a core, you know, local presence, wherever that is. But I wonder what your observations are on that as being maybe a potential uh, avenue to emerging ecosystems that maybe don't have that pool of talent that's done it before. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's really leveling the playing field. Um, the two companies that we have that are, are active right now are kind of out looking for talent. And there's no, I mean, unless you're doing bench science, you can be anywhere. Right. And I, you know, I just work with people from all over the world, honestly. And the only challenge is like lining up time zones, right? And just getting everybody into yeah. meetings at the same time. But we've taken that requirement away that you sit in an office together and work together in an office. And, and there's some very important elements, yeah. you know, that kind of come into play that way. But I think for ecosystems like ours in Chicago, this is a huge step forward for us that we can tap people outside of the ecosystem, you know, bring them in when we need to and, and build great teams and, and then, you know, do, do the R&D that we need to in a localized way. There's also many more opportunities to outsource different parts of, I mean, we have a, a new cell therapy company and all the process development and everything that needs to be done for GMP and manufacturing. That's not even going to be done by us because there's so many ways to outsource it sure. now. So that distributed model, I think, also helps. Yeah, no, great point. And, and maybe just bringing it back to kind of current day and, um, your lab uh, on the academic side. What are the things you're concentrated on there, and how, what are some of the potential applications of area science that your academic lab is focused within? And then maybe we can segue into some of your current companies too. It'd be great to hear more about um, the focus of, of those companies. Sure. So <clears throat> we work in a number of different areas. We're, we're very agnostic about the kinds of problems that we solve, but instead look for... Uh, Again, measurements that you can't make right now. That's usually where we start. And so we do a lot of work on sensing. So how can you make a sensor? It's usually an electronic or an electrochemical sensor that uh, allows you to do things in the clinical diagnostics context that can't be done right now. Uh, we're increasingly focused on implantable sensors, sensors that you can put in the human body to make measurements of, of your, your physiology in, in real time. So we're doing a lot of work on that. And then uh, we also have a platform that's very good for really high throughput, single cell, single cell level uh, protein profiling measurements. And we're using that for a variety of different things. We've, we've deployed it uh, to look at new ways to do cell therapy development. We have a big effort on uh, therapeutic target discovery, where we, we just find cells that have really interesting phenotypes. And using this platform, we can kind of identify them and uh, characterize them and then find new targets that could be relevant for, for therapeutic development. So those are the two big areas right now. And what uh, is the makeup of the, would you say, the student 
profile is, what are they looking for when they come to the lab? I know that, um, you know, oftentimes a, a lab may be known for a certain thing. You, you mentioned Paul Schimmel had kind of shepherded people down, you know, uh, dual paths, sometimes the industry uh, applied side, sometimes, you know, staying in academia. Um, what is, is there any flavor for, you know, why students are coming to your lab? Is it primarily the science that you're engaged in and the, the use of that science to further research or any, any overarching themes of why a, uh, a student may join your lab? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we take students from many different programs, and the students that come in through different programs are all kind of looking for different things. We tend to get chemistry students that are like measurers. There's really two kinds of chemists. There's molecule makers and molecule measurers, mm. and we're measurers. And so the students who come in are like, yeah, okay, that's a measurement group. That looks like my kind of thing. Yeah. Students usually get very interested in the whole, oh, wow, and there's been companies that have been spun out of the lab. Maybe I can learn something about that. And um, so we get those kinds of students. And I think in general, it I have seen a huge shift over the last five years. I mean, students used to come in and say, well, I'm very interested in this kind of material or this kind of reaction. And students now are like, I, I want to make a difference. You know, I want to get a PhD and I want to make an impact. And I want to like, you know, the next time there's a pandemic, I want to be in there helping with the next vaccine. Like it's yep. just the mindset yep. has completely shifted, I think, because of everything going on. in the Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, maybe you could just uh, shift into then your current areas of focus of, of your company's control therapeutics and, and Arma. Can you just tell us a few words about each of those companies and, and what you're hopeful for with them? Yeah. So very excited about both of these companies. Uh, Control is a cell therapy development company based on this rare cell profiling uh, capability that I, I mentioned. And what we were able to do is actually find tumor reactive lymphocytes in the blood. So these are cells that have been in the tumor tissue. They've come out. They're circulating around in the body of cancer patients. And so control is developing ways to isolate those cells, multiply them so that we can generate doses of cell therapy in this very non-invasive way. And it's broadly applicable to, to basically all solid tumors. So really exciting concept. Uh, we have some great investors uh, behind the company. We had General Catalyst lead a, a seed uh, round that just closed. And so it's really exciting times. This is my first uh, therapeutics company, so it's kind of a new area for me. And I've, I've been on a pretty steep learning curve, but it's been a lot of fun. And uh, another really cool thing about uh, Control is that we were able to recruit uh, Michael Kalos uh, as our CSO. Michael worked with Carl June at Penn sure. when the CAR-T, that first CAR-T therapy was developed. And so having Michael as a CSO of this company is like amazing. It's re really hard to get people like Absolutely. that when you're so early. Yeah. So that, um, I'm very excited by that. So it's, it's early days. We have our first... Uh, scientists kind of coming online at portal next week actually That's to exciting. get the labs going so we're at an incredibly uh, exciting point there um and you know therapeutics as you well know it's it's a tough long road yeah. and there's a lot of um you know ups and downs but i i think if we can get this concept to work you know the impact could just be absolutely transformative right yeah. many of these tumors we just we only have things that give you like three more months of life, right? Exactly, we don't yeah. want that. We want things that are curative. And that's right. what we think we, we have the potential to bring forward. No, so. I think it's an exciting time, you know, where we're seeing uh, just breakthroughs, you know, in cancer therapeutics um, over the past decade. You mentioned Carl June and you think of, you know, the work that he did and the impact, again, getting back to the impact that you've made and that other 
faculty members that have made that also have started and spun out companies, you know, in the case of Carl and Jim Wilson and others, you know, you look at how not only have they transformed uh, patients' lives, which is, you know, unbelievable and remarkable when you think about leukemia and what, you know, CAR-T has done uh, and, and products like Kimariah in that regard, but the whole field and then the economic impact that you know, just a couple of faculty members have had on the whole Philadelphia yeah. landscape, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, Chicago and having people like you in the ecosystem, that's the possibility, you know, and the transformative nature of the science at the forefront is obviously critical and first and foremost, and you're aiming to solve a problem. This one, a very critical problem. But the when we think about in, you know, not too uh, long of a, a period of time, just a couple of decades from the, you know, deciphering of the human genome to where we are today, the potential impact that a control therapeutics could have and the possibilities, again, it like you said, there's always a lot of challenge and the science isn't, you know, it, it's frontier. So there's, there's risk involved in all of that. But I just think it's fascinating to imagine, you know, um, a few successes like that in a, in a given area uh, not only impact the university, the surrounding, you know, economy, but it'll be fun to watch, you know, control grow up yeah. and, and, and develop as well. And the talent that will come out of that and propagate other labs and, and so on and so forth. One question I want to, I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but one question I wanted to ask you as you've kind of evolved and you're, you're both on the lab and on the company side, the importance of diversity of skills and backgrounds and disciplines. So, uh, you know, you started in chemistry, but it seems like a lot of things you're working on incorporate a lot of other elements beyond chemistry. How important yeah. is a multidisciplinary interface with different types of people or different types of areas uh, guiding your research? Yeah, it's it's so important. And, and I think really the front... Most of the frontier areas in science right now are highly multidisciplinary. And you have to be willing to just keep teaching yourself new things and, and reading and learning. And in the case of control, it was actually a, a really amazing graduate student who we just started brainstorming about applying our platform to cell therapy. And then he started just kind of pulling ideas out of thin air. And then together we learned a lot of things wow. and then got to the point where we could do the experiments and could prove out the concept. And, you know, we're, we're not going to go head to head with, you know, the world's leading tumor immunologist, but we learned enough to be able to do the right experiments and get the Michael Calluses of the world to, to join us. So you have to do that. But that's actually what I love doing. Like mm -hmm. I, there are scientists that I admire these kinds of people so much. They, go to work and every day they study the same problem and they go deep, 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 deep into things. And, and we need that to, yeah. to discover new phenomena on the whole thing. But I am just like, not like that at all. I go <laughs> in every day. I just kind of want to learn something new. Yeah. And that's how really new ideas spark, yeah. right? When people put new ideas together for the yeah. first time. No, that's awesome. But that's where growth happens too. And you're always a little bit in the uncomfortable state where you're right. not knowing something, but you're learning yeah. about it and you're moving the needle. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off, but maybe you could share a few words about uh, Arma as well and kind of what the direction of that company might look like. Yeah. So Arma, I, I think of Arma as it's kind of a pandemic baby. I'm not sure it would have been born if we hadn't had a pandemic. Um, but we, we had this really interesting new sensing technology. And again, I had done two companies based on electrochemical detectors previously. I wasn't sure I wanted to do a third because it's a slightly tough uh, 
part of the sector to raise money in. But anyway, uh, we had this great technology. We had a lot of time to think about it because the pandemic started and everything was shut down. And eventually we, we got enough people interested in the simplicity of what the ARMA technology is and how it works. It's basically a little molecular motion detector. Hmm. You put it on the surface of an electrode and then you just watch it move. And you don't have to bring in reagents. You don't have to wash the sensor. It's a really high performance detection approach. And we were starting to think about what to do with it. And I kind of linked arms with two of my uh, graduate students, or two graduate students working with me to see what we could do. And along came analog devices, you know, Fortune 500 microelectronics company. And they had read about the technology and came to us and said, we think this is the thing mm. that can make biomarker measurements robust enough to be done in the home. And they told us this, and we said, really? Wow, that's amazing <laughs> that you think that. Um, and then they're, they're an incredible company for being so large and, and Fortune 500 and the whole thing. They think deeply about science and, and new concepts and, and new technologies. And so they were willing to, to join forces with Arma. We kind of got the company going and got a little bit of cash in the door uh, and then got them as a partner and then inked a, a joint development agreement with them to, to build a first product together. And I was just blown away by this. I yeah. mean, to have that kind of a partner at the table right. when you're so early, mm -hmm. but it it's incredible because it gives you a path to scale. Absolutely. You know, you're so yeah. far away from needing it, but you've got it. And with these kinds of companies, it's usually the other way around. You're desperate. You got to get to scale, but you can't find anybody who will work with you. Yeah. So, so it's very exciting. We have a lot of other partnerships that are, are getting up and running and the, the company has, it's just, it's a really simple handheld disposable, uh, you know, consumable that you use for testing. There's a lot of stuff out there that looks similar, but this is the real deal. And it has a very novel technology at the heart of it. So I'm incredibly excited about it. And there's been a huge amount of inbound interest from a lot of companies. Well, you touched on something that's really important. I mean, you've kind of built in your end market by having that partner right at the beginning. And I think that's something that's often overlooked too. I've noticed, uh, especially I think in uh, universities that are transforming to become, you know, certainly continue to do great science on the basic sciences side of things, but incorporate more of applied sciences. And as they do that, um, there's, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, your experience at t Toronto, it, it was a different time, you know, and so, uh, the environment around tech transfer and the activation of that was, was, a, was a different environment. If the idea is to get IP out of the university and, you know, move that IP, you know, into the market, uh, you know, to solve problems, you have to invite industry in much earlier um, than you used to do as a university. So I see universities, I think in a healthy way, reaching into the market more deeply um, and, and still preserving you know, the purity of academia, but at the same time being relevant on the applied sciences side of things, but an often overlooked piece of the puzzle where you have brilliant scientists that are doing great research that are at the top of the field in a given area of expertise. But the, the idea you know, if you just plow forward with advancing the technology uh, without the benefit of input from the market, whether it's VCs or, or corporate partners, um, you know, you're often blindly kind of leading that what could have been a good technology kind of in, in, into the dirt um, by understanding really at that front end what the application is or what challenges you might have with your initial plan and how you might pivot 
can oftentimes be the difference between you know long-term success and kind of near-term failure. It's been my observation of kind of the, you're working in isolation in academia, you gotta poke a hole and have a front door and a window. And I see more universities kind of building that window, which is, which is good to see. What are your thoughts uh, around the, the future? What do you think are some of the exciting areas that we should be paying attention to from, you know, whether it be from the biosensor field uh, perspective or, um, you know, cell therapy, kind of looking out, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, what are the areas of bioscience that excite you the most? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two really important overarching concepts. I mean, one is creating cures. Mm-hmm. Like I said, not extra months on your life with low quality of life, but actual cures. And I think cell therapy, it's so nascent right now, yeah. but the potential is there to do that. So I, I, I just, I'm very excited about that area because um, I think it can do what we're never going to be able to do with small molecules or most antibodies. Um, so, you know, really focusing on things that can be curative, I, I think is an important guiding principle. And then focusing on prevention, right? Like mm-hmm. we know that right. 90% of diseases or something like that are caused by inflammation. That if we knew what was happening, we could probably stop it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the sensors and the bioelectronics come in. You know, if we could <clears throat> put on a contact lens you know, 50 sensors that reported on our cytokines and different inflammatory markers. And then we just, you know, just like your watch monitors your steps every day, you know, you have an app that says, you know what, like your inflammation markers just drifted up and you think, wow, what did I have to eat yesterday? And then you figure out that something in your diet or something that you're doing is really causing inflammation in your body. You know, we can drive down cardiovascular disease, cancer, Mm -hmm. all these things. And then we don't even have to have, you know, the cures. The therapeutics, yeah. Prevent. So yeah. I know those are like big abstract concepts, but I think that's how what we're developing now can completely change the health landscape mm-hmm. and 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 our, our individual, you know, health and wellness and, and how we then deal with d- disease as well. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. I just have to say, Shana, that I am just extraordinarily grateful to um, the nun with the cane that, you know, cracked the whip and cast you in the direction of chemistry and, you know, put you in position to not only do the great things you've already done, but just I look forward to the next chapters. I feel really honored and uh, fortunate to get a chance to collaborate with you firsthand. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. I know our audience will be delighted to uh, hear and share more about, you know, uh, what, what they've learned from you. Thank you. Likewise, I'm so excited to be part of this community. And thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.